0: This is
1: The Rounds Table. Welcome everybody to a special episode of The Rounds Table. Uh, We're joining you live from the University of Toronto General Internal Medicine Citywide Rounds. And today, uh, Dr. Amol Verma, who you know uh, very well on The Rounds Table from past episodes, uh, we're going to present to you a fully vaccinated, COVID-free episode discussing the top five papers for general internists over the past year to year and a half. Uh, Amol, welcome back to the show.
0: Yeah, thanks, Karen. We're calling this the Recovered Former Hosts, Recovering Former Hosts Edition. And so thanks to all of our fantastic colleagues from across the city for joining. I also, just as a caveat, get extremely nervous when a lecture is called the top five papers. I much prefer calling it kind of like five papers we thought were kind of cool, as opposed to some objective normative ranking of you know, what is ultimately an unquantifiable
1: value of research question. Absolutely. So on that note, I will just review the, the objectives. As Amol said, the top five was just a ruse to get you to show up today. But really, we're going to review five interesting and what we thought were important papers. Um, we're not going to talk about COVID. We're going to talk about things that you may not have been able to keep up with because COVID has been occupying all of our collective attention for the last 18 months. Um, I have no personal disclosures to make. Uh, Amol is a part-time employee of Ontario Health, and so that's uh, an important disclosure.
0: Rest assured, none of my comments today speak on behalf of our governmental health agency, which I'm sure no one was confused about.
1: So how did Amol and I go about selecting these supposedly top five papers of the year? Well, uh, occasionally him and I read a few journals. We asked a few friends, phoned a few friends that we know that are up to date on these types of things. Of course, we listened to the Freilich brothers' rounds table. So Mike Freilich, for most of you know, is a clinician scientist at Sinai. He's taken over the rounds table with his brother, John, and they're doing an outstanding job keeping it going and growing the listenership. But bottom line, it's been a completely arbitrary selection process, and we hope that you agree with our selections. Would love to hear if you have other selections that you thought didn't make this list, but should have. So without further ado, we'll go down the top five papers that Amol and I have selected for today's rounds. The first, which is fresh off the press, is the Emperor Preserve trial. That looks at the involvement or use of SGLT2 inhibitors in patients with heart failure, and in this case, it's preserved ejection fraction. So spoiler alert, a big win for SGLT2 inhibitors there. We're gonna look at the ever-increasing quest to shorten antibiotic duration in folks with uh, community-acquired pneumonia. Third, we'll take you through the EAST-AFNET-4 trial, looking at rhythm control in patients with atrial fibrillation. So revisiting an old question with new interest. Next, for those of you who practice critical care or have interests in oxygen targets, we're gonna look at the ICU ROCS trial. And finally, a homegrown trial, really important in the New England this year, looking at START, AKI, around the timing of initiation of dialysis, Um, again, for really relevant to those of you who practice on the critical care side of things, uh, maybe in their locums or on community practice. So, Amol, I'm going to jump into things here. uh, First, I'll lead off with the Emperor Preserve Trial. This just came out just under a month ago, published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And... You know, I am just constantly blown away by the ever evolving evidence around the use of these therapies in folks with diabetes and now in cardiovascular disease. And sometimes it seems to me like it's too good to be true. But nonetheless, let's take you through the emperor preserved trial. So Karen, tell us what's the bottom line from this
0: trial? What's your key highlight takeaway?
1: Well, this was a multi-center randomized trial. It enrolled symptomatic patients with Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, so not the typical heart failure with reduced ejection fraction trial. And in this, we found that empagliflozin, one of the key SGLT2 inhibitors, reduced the overall risk of cardiovascular death or heart failure hospitalization. And that was compared to placebo or usual care. The number needed to treat for this was 30. All right, so walk us through
0: what does the overview describe the study in some more detail for us?
1: Right, so as mentioned it's a randomized trial. It was done at several centers around the world and a pretty typical traditional RCT that most of us would be familiar with. It enrolled just under 6,000 patients. Average age was 71 years old, 45% female and predominantly Caucasian population folks had symptomatic heart failure, predominantly NYHA2 class. So sort of some limitation related to their heart failure, but not uh, severe limitation. I think, you know, you would see a typical spread of cardiovascular disease. Half the patients did have atrial fibrillation, which I think is something just to think about. For those of you who may not be up to date on the classification of heart failure, preserved ejection fraction is greater than 40% by ECHO uh, or other uh, standardized testing, and two-thirds had an EF with greater than 50%. There's been a new classification around mildly reduced between 40 and 50%. And then they also had to have a nt proBNP level greater than 300, or if they had atrial fibrillation greater than 900 picograms per mil. These were patients who were what were called stable uh, on their diuretic dosing, meaning that they hadn't had their diuretics changed in at least a week. Um, and they followed these folks for about two, just over two years. Uh, comparison group was a standard placebo-controlled therapy and, of course, you know, your usual sort of guideline-directed therapy for heart failure. And so what were their major study outcomes? What did they find, Karen? So from a primary outcome standpoint, they were looking at a composite of both death from cardiovascular causes or hospitalization for heart failure. This was done in a time-to-event analysis framework and then some of the key secondary outcomes just to point out so there's a you know literature around these therapies as being renal protective so they looked at the rate of decline in the glomerular filtration rate they also you know tried to measure some patient reported outcomes so they looked at quality of life using the Kansas City cardiomyopathy questionnaire and then of course safety outcomes which are primarily of interest uh, in medicine of course do no harm and we've seen mycotic genital infections with SGLT2 inhibitors previously hypotension acute kidney injury as the main ones that were reported here what did they find well what you see is you know immediate separation of the benefit favoring empagliflozin in a reduction of cardiovascular death and hospitalization for heart failure with a hazard ratio of 0.79 in the confidence intervals uh, demonstrated there so Clear benefit immediately that sort of levels off after, you know, sort of three to six months where the lines become parallel and you don't see much further benefit beyond. And so what about those
0: secondary outcomes that we're obviously, all of us get nervous around, you know, safety or, and maybe also any impact on quality of life?
1: Yeah, great points. So if you break apart the primary outcome, which was pre-specified in their trial, predominantly that primary outcome is being driven by a reduction in hospitalization for heart failure. So just about a 3% absolute risk reduction with the hazard ratios listed there, corresponding to a number needed to treat of 31. There was a reduction in death from cardiovascular causes, just under a percent in absolute reduction, with the hazard ratios and confidence intervals crossing one. The sort of subgroup analyses, when they looked at that heart failure with mildly reduced ejection fraction, so that 40 to 50% folks, which is about a third of them in the trial, Those actually appeared to have the greatest benefit in those primary outcomes over the individuals who had, you know, ejection fractions greater than 50%. And then as they've done in previous trials, they looked at whether these patients had diabetes or not. And the primary findings seemed to hold up regardless of someone's diabetes status. The, you know, trial wasn't designed uh, or powered to measure differences in quality of life, but they didn't see any uh, in this case for this trial either. And in terms of the safety outcomes that I mentioned, which were lumped into a composite, you know, there's quite a high rate of adverse events, but no difference between the groups. So about half the patients experience some of those adverse events mentioned, but no apparent differences between them in a statistically or clinically significant way. So, you know, what does this build on as far as uh, the literature we know? Well, there's Several trials, you know, the CHARM trial, TOPCAT, PARAGON, that have looked at different therapies in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. None of those showed any benefits from their primary outcomes. We have seen cardiovascular benefits in SGLT2 inhibitor trials in the EMPREG with diabetes, in the EMPEROR, which was reduced ejection fraction, as well as the DAPA, uh, DAPO trial. So this is really a uh, progress in a patient population with preserved uh, ejection fraction where most interventions have failed previously. Just a little bit of think about, you know, a quarter of the patients discontinued treatment or left the trial and didn't wish to participate anymore. That was balanced on both sides, but didn't appear to be related to adverse effects of the drug, but quite a high dropout rate. And as always, anything industry sponsored, you know, just to keep in mind that these trials are funded by the drug companies. For me, I wonder what's actually driving this. They published a follow-up letter in the New England Journal that showed that the renal protective benefits are still present, probably not as large in magnitude as the heart failure with reduced ejection fraction, but they still don't believe that it's likely driven by a reduction in hospitalization for you know, acute kidney injury or other related renal mechanisms. So I don't know. And, and, and those of you out there who have more expertise in this, please feel free to chime in at the end. And then of course, there's always the question of this is a class effect or this is just an epiglifalism specific effect. And hopefully there'll be some trials to, to reproduce these results in the future.
0: Yeah, so Kieran, this is kind of a you know breakthrough in one sense, which is that until now, we've been, there's been a huge amount of therapeutic pessimism around the HEF-PEF uh, you know, condition, which is we've till now really not seen any effective therapies. And at the same time, really a dramatic immediate benefit that I don't like part of me makes me wonder how much of this may or may not be sort of too good to be true, how much of it may be related to the diuretic effect in those people who are pretty close to having half ref. And so I'm curious, like, how do you contextualize this? And what's our takeaway? My instinct is kind of to wait for some more other trials and maybe focus more on like that 50% and above group before really declaring this a huge win for the half
1: pep. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I think everything should be taken with a grain of salt, although not in heart failure. But this is a new breakthrough. As you said, it's something that's succeeded where others have failed before. I think that there is enough evidence for me in the heart failure population in general to suggest that these are probably a real result. But before I really enroll this in my practice as sort of standard therapy, I'd like to see it reproduced in some other trials and, and hopefully with some other agents that are uh, in the SGLT2 class uh, inhibitors. Nevertheless, I think that the trial was very well done and I didn't see any major, major problems with it, such that uh, myself and others you know, around the world in, in discussing it have said that these therapies should be considered if, if your patient is symptomatic you're trying to use diuretics or they're stable and you're not helping and they're interested in reducing these cardiovascular death and hospitalization outcomes, I think that it's something to think about and, and you might be able to try if your patients are interested on that level of, of practice. Just to, one other thing to point out in Canada, presently, these therapies are not currently approved by Health Canada for the treatment of heart failure. Um, so that's just also something to keep in mind when you're making these decisions with your patients.
0: Great, thanks, Karen. Let's change. Let's change categories. Let's talk about beta lactams. This was a trial that caught my attention, published in the Lancet earlier this year. And as you kind of alluded to in our introduction, the never-ending quest for ever shorter courses of antibiotics in infectious syndromes. So this one is whether we could discontinue beta-lactam treatment after three days for patients hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia to non-critical care settings. Um, all right, Amal,
1: so take us through what you think that the bottom line is for this trial.
0: Yeah, so the high-level takeaway here is that in this multi center placebo-controlled, randomized control trial of patients hospitalized with community-acquired pneumonia on medical wards, but not critically ill, who were clinically stable at three days, according to some pre-specified criteria based on vital signs and and things like that. It was non-inferior to stop their antibiotics after three days rather than continuing them for eight
1: days. Okay. Well, it sounds like there's a little bit to unpack there with a couple of things you've highlighted, but I'm always interested in less is more. So let's see if we can cut down from five or seven days to even shorter. So tell me a mole how did they go about addressing this question?
0: Yeah, so this was a randomized control trial. It was a multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled, and designed as a non-inferiority study, You know, comparing the longer duration of antibiotics to the shorter duration of antibiotics. There uh, were 310 patients in the study They were typically 73 years old, about 40% were women. Importantly, when we think about the severity of pneumonia that was included in this study, the typical PSI score was 80, which actually equates to kind of low-ish risk according to the categorization of PSI, so about a 1% to 3% predicted mortality. So they were sick enough to be hospitalized, but they were on the sort of less severe end of the spectrum here okay. to begin with. At, at enrollment. Important, important caveat in
1: their comparison group.
0: Yeah, so they compared amoxiclav versus placebo for five days. This is people were uh, randomized at three days. So they received some beta lactam treatment at the beginning. So whether that was a third generation cephalosporin or, you know, a clavulin, uh, sort of clavulinic acid inhibitor combination there. So the, the beta lactam, beta lactamase inhibitor. So Uh, That was the first three days of therapy. And then at day three, they were either randomized to continue with oral amoxicillin clavulinic acid for five days or placebo. And tell us about some
1: of the, you know, inclusion criteria for these patients.
0: Yeah, so really uh, important here to know who we could apply this trial to. So they were hospitalized with CAP. They received the beta-lactam monotherapy. So that's according to the European guidelines. So they did not necessarily receive the, you know, azithromycin or other uh, macrolide combination as we might do sometimes in, in our practice here. The patients all had to be clinically stable after three days, which was defined as meeting all of the following criteria they were afebrile, they had a heart rate less than 100, they had a respiratory rate less than 24, they had oxygen saturation greater than 90% or higher, they had a systolic blood pressure measurement of 90 or higher, and they had a normal mental status. So that was kind of, you know, a fairly simple way to assess clinical stability. They excluded patients who had severe or complicated pneumonia. So if you had a big effusion, if you were immunosuppressed, if it was a healthcare-associated pneumonia, if it was aspiration-related, or if it was like an atypical organism such as Legionella, those were excluded.
1: I think that those, that stability criteria, you know, it's something I'm sort of going through in my head, regardless when we're talking about our patients and figuring out whether, you know, they're ready to go home or we're continuing therapy. So it seems reasonable to me.
0: Yeah, it's one, I agree with you. It's one of the things I find the most appealing about this study is those are really a practical set of criteria that I think most clinicians would probably be able to arrive at just based on a gestalt, right? Like even if you don't yeah. remember the specific
1: numbers there. All right, I'm ready. Tell us what they
0: found. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line there is that they found no difference. So that their primary outcome was cure at 15 days after the start of their first day of receiving antibiotic therapy. They predefined a non-inferiority margin of 10%. And what they found was that cure in the placebo group, 77% were cured at 15 days and 68% were cured in the continuing antibiotic group. And the definition of cure at 15 days was essentially uh, remained clinically well, did not require resumption of antibiotic therapy, were were not rehospitalized.
1: And then what about some secondary outcomes
0: there? Yeah, so they then sort of extended out to 30 days to see who was the cure. And again, the cure was essentially the same. 72% were cured in both groups. It's kind of funny to think about how the cure rates actually went down in the placebo group between 15 days and 30 days. And I think it's really just the definition of, you know, did you get sick again? Were you re-hospitalized, right? So the, a proportion of people get re-hospitalized right. between 15 and 30 days. So, but essentially no difference uh, in 30-day cure. And then, you know, the numbers of 30-day mortality are very small. It was not powered to detect it, but there was no difference. So so 2% mortality in the placebo group, 1% in the antibiotic group, that difference is really just three deaths versus, versus two deaths. Deaths, and hospital length of stay was uh, not significantly different between the groups, sort of five days in the placebo group versus six days in the antibiotic group. And so just to reflect on the overall findings here, you know, they essentially call it a non-inferior finding between the two groups, uh, acknowledging that they pre-specified a 10% margin. And I think you could potentially quibble with a 10% difference. So how do we contextualize all this? hmm You know, the IDSA guidelines, the American Thoracic Society and the Infectious Disease Society of America currently recommend about five days of antibiotics. That was based on the previous recent trial comparing five days versus 10 days of antibiotics for community-acquired pneumonia. This study suggests actually three days is reasonable in people who have non-severe, uncomplicated community-acquired pneumonia and
1: an excellent early clinical response. And what about some of the counterbalancing measures here?
0: Yeah, I think the critiques of this study, obviously, it's small, there was, you know, only 300 patients enrolled, I think, the point there is, it was statistically powered to detect a 10% non inferiority margin, right. And so, you know, that's the sample size that they reached and pre specified. And so I think, you know, if you believe the 10% non inferiority margin, and then you find that the results fit within that margin, then yeah, this study demonstrated non inferiority. The one thing is the authors did estimate a 90% cure, and they really found sort of 70, 70 to 75% cure rates, right? So, so people were not cured as uh, much as they expected uh, in both groups.
1: Yeah, I think there's some nuances to this uh, trial in making some practice recommendations and... You know, before we get into that and sort of the takeaway, what, what are your thoughts about these unanswered questions and sort of some generalizability?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple unanswered questions. One is there is a, a bit of a difference in the way that they practice there, which with sort of beta-lactam monotherapy as opposed to, I think a lot of people in North America add a second agent to beta-lactams for our hospitalized patients. There's a lot of practice variation around that for sure. So, you know, there's an open question, but beyond that, I think the patient population and the general approach here is pretty consistent with our community-acquired pneumonia population. The other big caveat
1: is these were people with pretty mild
0: pneumonia uh, based on their initial severity of presentation.
1: Right. So what do you think, Amol? Is this something that's going to change your practice? What's the take-home for folks on the line today?
0: Yeah, for, for me, the takeaway is I'm a bit too chicken to change my clinical practice based on one 300-person randomized control trial until some distinguished body of experts tells me I should. And also because I think that the benefits for less antibiotics accrue when a whole health system or population uses them. It's not so much an individual patient benefit, right? So the five versus three days, like if I'm out there swimming alone, uh, prescribing people three days of antibiotics, uh, it's probably not what I'm looking for. So I'm eager to see how these get incorporated
1: into new guidelines, but I'm not going to really change my personal practice. All right. Well, I think that's an important trial to highlight for folks to make their decisions around that. Um, so let's move on to the third of our five papers today. Uh, George Gershwin song, who's got rhythm and who needs anything more than rhythm. So this was the East AFNET 4 trial looking at an early rhythm control therapy in patients with atrial fibrillation.
0: Okay, Kieran. So give us the highlight here. What's, what's the bottom line?
1: The Coles Notes. So this is another multi-center international randomized trial. Key things to think about, patients with atrial fibrillation, they had atrial fibrillation as a new onset condition within a year of enrollment. Um, They had comorbid cardiovascular conditions. And what this trial really showed was that if you pursue rhythm control early on in these folks, using either pharmacotherapy or interventional ablation. Uh, this reduced the risk of a composite of various cardiovascular outcomes, including cardiovascular mortality, stroke, heart failure, or hospitalization for acute coronary syndromes, compared to the standard usual care under the guidelines within the regions. Impressively, this was a number needed to treat at eight of 18 over a time course of five years, just given how the follow-up was, was constructed here.
0: Great. So uh, let's dive in. Tell us a little bit more about the study.
1: Yeah. So again, just mentioned international trial. The intervention itself was open label. The outcome assessment was blinded. Now they had just under 3000 participants enrolled. Average age was 70 years old, just under half were female again a fairly uh, typical spread of cardiovascular comorbidities you know most people had hypertension and a smattering of stroke heart failure and chronic kidney disease people had early atrial fibrillation on average it was 36 days so just over a month from their diagnosis that they were enrolled in the trial and they were followed for just over 5 years uh, on average the comparator group was rhythm control uh, sorry that was the intervention group was rhythm control using antiarrhythmic drugs or ablation, plus cardioversion uh, in the cases of persistent atrial fibrillation. The comparator group was usual care, and this could include symptom-directed rhythm control. So sometimes people might use antirhythmics uh, for symptoms alone on top of rate control therapy. Everybody was to practice a guideline-directed rate control and, of course, stroke prophylaxis according to the risk scores and patient decisions around that.
0: All right. So what did they find, Kieran?
1: Yeah. So they were going to measure two primary outcomes. The first primary outcome was a time-to-event composite of those cardiovascular outcomes I mentioned at the beginning there. And the second was the number of nights they spent in hospital per year, which they found no difference for, by the way. Um, But we will get to the time-to-event composite in a second. And again, what you're seeing here is uh, you know within the first six months, the separation of those curves favoring an early rhythm control strategy uh, with you know possibly some accrued benefits over time, but about after two years, you'd say that not much more benefit is being accrued. There's your hazard ratio of 0.79 and your confidence intervals on top there.
0: Great. So that's a pretty impressive effect on the primary outcome, Kieran. Uh, take us through the secondary outcomes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, everyone loves a positive trial. So these are often were favored towards that sometimes by, by their impressiveness. Secondary outcomes. So they, they did measure some quality of life, you know, patient oriented outcomes around quality of life using the EQ5D scale. No difference there. Safety outcomes around adverse events related to procedures or, or the drugs that were used for rhythm control, about a 15, 16% adverse outcome rate, but balanced between the two arms. Uh, Although there was specifically some higher adverse events related to the rhythm control medications in the early group versus the usual care. So in some of those sub-subgroup analyses, you might see some differences. Overall, though, I think, you know, if we're putting this in the context of the larger literature around atrial fibrillation and therapies, you know, if you remember the AFFIRM trial, there was actually suggestions in there uh, in a trend, although not deemed to be clinically or statistically significant, towards increased mortality with a rhythm control strategy thought to be related to the toxicity of some of those medications. And some of the thoughts were that maybe there's differences in whether the folks have early or later onset. Uh, And this trial includes ablation, whereas the firm did not. Of course, it's not a blinded trial, um, although they tried to to, minimize bias by blinding outcome assessment and they didn't compare the efficacy of the different treatments within a rhythm control strategy. So we don't know, you know, if you believe that primary finding, we don't know, is it better to use pharmacotherapy? Is it better to go straight to to ablation? Is there some combination of both? There was a, a companion trial called the STOP atrial fibrillation that did show a benefit of ablation over pharmacotherapy. So if you're trying to combine those two then you might be able to think that you would prefer to pursue uh, ablation over pharmacotherapy in early AF but these are compiling all the grander uh, literature together and then you know there's some unanswered questions so if you if you achieve rhythm control in some of these patients should you then stop their anticoagulation what's their long-term risk of cardioembolic stroke in this kind of a setting can you take off some of their other medications if you achieve early rhythm control. And and there, you know, this wasn't designed to answer those questions. So hopefully uh, in the future, we'll get some more studies looking at that.
0: Was it one of the big differences between this trial and the previous trials though, Kieran, just to that point of anticoagulation, the continuation of anticoagulation therapy in the rhythm control group? Like, so if anything, you know, it's, it's probably way too early to say.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a growing body of evidence that I've seen that shows you know, if you've had atrial fibrillation once, you're always at risk for it, including cardioembolic stroke, which just depends on whether we catch it at a certain time or not. So I think, you know, so we're always worried to withdraw anticoagulation, but there's a big bleeding risk that goes along with that, and that's a potential for harm. So if we can take that away and safely support our patients, you know, then it's a win-win. But in my mind, we don't have the evidence enough yet to make that decision, and hopefully that comes
0: Yeah, that makes sense. And so, Kieran, with this trial and the STOP AF and kind of the body of evidence that emerged around early rhythm control therapy, it does feel like a bit of a practice shift around this. So how has this, if at all, changed your practice?
1: Yeah, I think so as the general internist, you know, I'm not often managing these individuals on a longitudinal basis, but I might be the one who picks it up during a hospitalization you know, either incidentally or they come into us for that particular reason. And so it's changed my practice to ask the experts earlier on now and say, okay, instead of, you know, counseling you on various therapies and what your life might look like moving forward with this new diagnosis, I'm going to send you to our cardiologists and get an opinion from them about whether you should have early, you know, and they're the ones doing the ablation and managing these drugs. So that's what's changed for me is just asking earlier and more often.
0: Yeah, me too. And I'd be curious to hear from our cardiology colleagues whether they've seen a huge bump in consults for AFib and how manageable that's been on their end, because for sure it's
1: changed my practice to do that. Yeah. All right. So let's keep moving here at a good clip. I'm all going to introduce the next trial.
0: Yeah. So the next trial is all around the uh, controversy surrounding the use of supplemental oxygen in hospitalized patients and specifically in critically ill patients or ICU patients. So this is the ICU Rocks trial, although we will uh, also touch on the other very interestingly named HOT ICU trial and the LOCO2 trials. So ICU trials have the catchiest
1: names, I think. They do. Absolutely. All right. So take us through the bottom line for this and why we chose it.
0: So in this multicenter randomized trial of mechanically ventilated ICU patients, conservative use of oxygen therapy did not show benefit. With respect to the number of ventilator free days compared to a usual standard oxygen therapy.
1: Okay. And, you know, even though some of us here are, are general internists on the wards, I think many of us practice where we're covering ICUs or potentially looking after ICU patients if we're locuming outside of urban centers. And often we're looking after these patients following ICU. So I think it's helpful to know this evidence, whether it affects your practice directly or not. So I'm all. Take us through sort of the design of this trial.
0: Yeah. So uh, this was a uh, multi-center single-blinded randomized control trial. So patients were blinded, but obviously it was not possible to blind the clinicians to their oxygen target. And the, the outcomes assessment was blinded as well. So they included almost 1,000 patients. Typical age was 58 years old. 37% were women. They had an Apache 2 score of 23, which equates to about a 40 to 50% mortality risk. And the comparison was conservative oxygen targets versus usual oxygen therapy. And the conservative targets was that you wanted to keep oxygen between 90 to 97% oxygen saturation for your intubated patients, as opposed to usual, which is there's no limit. And I like that, uh, as Kieran was preparing these slides, he kind of put the Goldilocks not to uh, just write not too high, not too low. And so you know they had this little algorithm for if you were in the conservative therapy group, basically the nursing or RT staff had to intervene immediately if the patient's oxygen saturation was greater than 97% to reduce the fraction of inspired oxygen to get them down to that target range, as opposed to in the usual group where you kind of just let people ride.
1: All right, so what were the findings of this Goldilocks trial?
0: Yeah, as I kind of, uh, you know, clearly they misnamed their trial. goldilocks (laughs) even has ox as the last two letters like it could have been perfect
1: Um, we can go into the business of creating critical care trial names i
0: seriously i think so they need your help okay so as i kind of alluded to already what they set as their primary outcome was the number of ventilator free days from randomization to day 28 so these were people initially intubated and they found no difference 21 versus 22 days They looked at quality of life and secondary outcomes. They actually did see some differences. So they found that the conservative oxygen group had less severe problems with mobility and personal care. And then death as an important, obviously, secondary outcome, but underpowered to detect. They saw no difference at either 90 or 180 days, and the death rate overall was about 35%. One interesting subgroup, uh, which raises some possible hypotheses for future exploration is the group that had ischemic hypoxic encephalopathy. So people who had, uh, for example, cardiac arrests leading to ischemic brain injury, Um, that group seemed to do better with the conservative oxygen therapy at 180 days. You had a pretty like Striking mortality difference, forty three percent versus fifty nine percent. You know that level of effect size is maybe you know probably chance plays into it to some extent, uh, but it at least raises an interesting uh, question there.
1: Yeah, and I think there was some discussion around the mechanisms of oxygen free radicals and sort of hyperoxia in a brain that's damaged by hypoxia. So I think that that's enough to sort of pique people's interest. But I agree, it's a hypothesis generating finding and not a not a definitive one. So put it in context for us.
0: Yeah. So let's put this in the context. So, you know, actually one of the things that started all of this was a large meta-analysis led by our colleagues in Hamilton called the IOTA meta-analysis. So they looked at 25 randomized trials in acutely ill adults. It was really a smorgasbord, sepsis, ICU, stroke, trauma, MI, cardiac arrest, emergency surgery. So a whole bunch of different uh, people, but acutely ill adults. And what they found was that patients who received a liberal oxygen targets generally above 96% suffered increased 30-day mortality with a relative risk of about 1.14, so 14% increased relative risk of mortality. In that meta-analysis, there were only about 300 critically ill patients or ICU patients. So since then, there've been several randomized trials published uh, in the ICU population. So there was the one we talked about just now, ICU ROCs. There was also the LOCO2 trial, so that was published contemporaneously with ICU Rocks, In that trial, there were 205 ARDS patients who were randomized to a lower PAO2 target as opposed to a higher target. That trial was actually stopped early for harm. There was a signal towards increase in the primary outcome of of mortality and also mainly driven by a greater incidence of mesoteric ischemia. I think it was a relatively small number of events, like five events, but the data safety monitoring board for that trial felt that they were unlikely to see a benefit, and there was no reason to continue. So that trial was stopped early. The HOT ICU trial, which was just more recently published in this year, uh, this is even larger, so included 3,000 hypoxemic ICU patients. They were randomized to you know, conservative versus more liberal oxygen therapy, and that trial, which was powered to mortality, found no difference in mortality at 90 days. So I think we have now like a pretty large body of ICU evidence pointing towards no benefit towards conservative therapy for oxygen. There are a couple of unanswered questions, and then truthfully, a little bit of ambiguity in how you might interpret these findings. So first, in the unanswered questions, we already raised the point about ischemic hypoxic encephalopathy. Of note, the HOT ICU trial, they didn't specifically look at ischemic brain injury, but they looked at the cardiac arrest population, and they found no difference in that subgroup. So I think it remains an open question about that. The second thing is that These trials collectively still do not exclude the possibility of benefit for a small mortality benefit for conservative therapy up to a 1.5% absolute benefit would still fall within kind of the confidence intervals that we saw within these trials. So, you know, having a super large trial to actually look at this might be reasonable given the ubiquity of oxygen use and sort of potential for population level benefit. Like maybe we do need to be thinking about this, like some of the statin trials or things like that. Right. So, so right. Yeah. I think one thing I'll just comment on in terms of how you might interpret this, before we go down a little bit of a tangent, how you might interpret this is, there's no mortality benefit to conservative oxygen. So you know ICU nurse and staff are overworked, so let's just make this one less thing that they need to think about, so just go with standard care. But the other way to think about this is in the setting of, if we were to run into scarce oxygen supply, for example, during a pandemic, It would be reasonable to give people conservative oxygen therapy. Uh, It's not necessarily been shown with harm, especially in those larger studies. And most likely, that small local study maybe that was like a you know small sample kind of by chance finding. And so maybe you can you
1: You can interpret it whatever way fits your your problem.
0: Whatever you need, yeah, exactly. So I think at least it justifies you know if you are in a emergency triage scenario where you're needing to ration oxygen, you could at least do it with a clean conscience, I think. Okay, so here's a little tangent I wanna go down, uh, Kieran which relates to the broader dialogue around structural or systemic racism in medicine. So there was this really important article published in the New England Journal about racial bias and pulse oximetry measurements. So they tested in a couple of different samples for occult hypoxemia. So basically, if your measured oxygen saturation with a bedside pulse oximeter correlates to your blood oxygen saturation based on an arterial blood gas. And so what they did was they compared about seven thousand Thousand white patients with a thousand black patients based on self identification. And what they found was that the pulse oximeter systematically under identified people who were hypoxic. So in black patients as compared to white patients. So the 11% of black patients who had a normal pulse ox reading actually were hypoxemic on an arterial blood gas as opposed to you know 4% 3.5% of those in white patients And it just, I think, points to, you know, who these devices probably were designed on and calibrated for. It raises really important questions as we think about wearable devices and apps and things like atrial fibrillation detection with an Apple Watch and whether that works in people of different skin tones. So I think it's just and, and highlights to me actually like a really interesting and insidious way in which systemic racism could affect our clinical practice in ways we would never even have thought about.
1: Yeah, this really opened my eyes up. Occult hypoxemia and occult systemic racism across the medical profession. So thanks for bringing that to our attention, uh, Amol. Let's just wrap this up. So we have some time for questions here. What's the takeaway message for the ICU ROCs trial for the folks on the line today?
0: Yeah, I think we've kind of covered it. Basically, conservative oxygen targets do not seem to provide clinical benefit in this critically ill patient population, you know, remains to be seen. I think whether the non-critically ill population needs more evidence, but I think points to maybe one less thing our ICU colleagues need to worry
1: about. Excellent. All right, last but not least, tribute to the Rolling Stones Start Me Up and a trial with the Canadian Critical Care Trials Group here around the timing of starting dialysis in acute kidney injury. So just to give you the bottom line for this trial, the START-AKI trial, multinational RCT. Uh, Again, we're talking about critically ill patients here and they had severe acute kidney injury, what they found was that if you started dialysis earlier, so within 12 hours of identifying the problem, what they called the accelerated strategy, it did not seem to lower the risk of death at three months or 90 days compared to what we would typically use as targets around biochemical indicators and other clinical indicators to start Dialysis in these folks
0: validates the thing the nephrologists always say to us, which is dialysis is not going to solve the problem. Unfortunately, yes, that's you right, know. absolutely. So, okay, take take us deeply into the study.
1: All right, so open label trial. You can't really, I mean, you could, I suppose, sham somebody on dialysis, but that would be ethically challenging. So, open label trial again with blinded outcome assessment. Just under three thousand patients, average age sixty five. Only about a third were female. Again, you know, from a dialysis and, and hospitalized uh, critically ill population, uh, comorbidities abound and hypertension, diabetes, et cetera. Just about under 60% were admitted to the ICU for sepsis, and 43% of those folks had septic shock, and they were followed on average for 90 days. What they looked at was this accelerated renal replacement therapy intervention, so starting within 12 hours of identification of severe AKI. Versus a standard strategy using these clinical markers you see down here, you know, things like potassium that's significantly elevated to severe acidemia, very low bicarb, volume overload, the, the typical uh, AEIOU stuff we learn in medical school around uh, some targets to start dialysis.
0: Sounds great. And what
1: did they find? Well, they looked at the primary outcome was good old fashioned mortality of any cause at, at 90 days. And you really see no separation or meaningful differences between either an accelerated strategy or that standard strategy using those clinical markers to start dialysis. Some of the secondary outcomes they looked at, there was higher dependence, so a, a prolonged need for ongoing dialysis when that was started earlier, But a 4% absolute risk difference with a relative risk of 1.74. So potentially significantly affecting patients' likely in an adverse way. Nobody really wants to be on dialysis unless they have to be. Some of the other safety outcomes around the use of dialysis, they had adverse events specifically related to the dialysis itself, you know, hypotension shifts in electrolytes, etc. And then you also have sort of the physical infection and other complications related to the dialysis catheter itself. And those were different favoring the standard care, right? So higher risk of harm in the early real replacement therapy accelerated RRT arm. If you wanted to quantify that as a number needed to harm, that would be 15 people at 90 days. And those are just, again, just the list of some of those uh, adverse events that were related to the therapy or the catheter around infection, et cetera.
0: All right, so bring it all together. What's your takeaway?
1: Yeah. So just to put it in the context, there's been several different trials, AKI-KI, which was a medical ICU population, Elaine, which was a surgical ICU population, an ideal, really, you know, unstable uh, findings. Some of them were positive, some of them were negative. And just thinking about the START-AKI trial, you know, we don't know what the patients who were not enrolled, who were excluded looked like. So maybe there's a systematic difference there that's important. And this is because One of the criteria was that the physicians, you know, who are treating these patients subjectively felt that one strategy accelerated or standard renal replacement therapy was mandated. So uh, an opportunity to introduce some sort of selection there. But overall, you know, uh, the evidence is there. And I think it's robust enough to tell us that if you have a patient who's critically ill with, you know, severe AKI. You don't need to rush to start renal replacement therapy outside of the traditional indicators that we would use rather than just a time-based trigger to do so. And in fact, it may increase the risk of harm by doing so. And so, you know, first do no harm and and I think we stick with what we've got. All right, Kieran.
0: So that brings us to the end of our whirlwind tour of the uh, uh sort of our five favorite papers of 2020, 2021, the non-COVID edition. It was nice to take this walk down memory lane with you and a huge thanks to the Freilich brothers for allowing our voices to creep back onto the Rounds Table podcast. And thanks to all our colleagues in the Division of General Internal Medicine across the University of Toronto for listening to us opine.
1: Yeah, and we'd love to hear your thoughts, questions, uh, agreements, disagreements. Let's open the floor up, and thanks for tuning in, everybody. Take care. Have a great weekend.
0: The Rounds Table is hosted online at healthydebate.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores. Also thanks to founder of The Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks
1: to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.